Uh, of course, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is considered one of the four major prophets, uh, excuse me, five major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah are technically called major prophets. But as you've heard me say before, they're really, forgive me, get my uh, lubricants in here. Um, there aren't any minor prophets, they're all major. But Jeremiah had a particularly heartbreaking um, mission as God had called him, and what's interesting is in the first chapter, God says, before you were even uh, at the outset in your mother's womb, I had a job for you to do, and I created you on purpose to do this job. And the job was basically to spend four years in a miserable ministry, preaching to his people, and he was a devout patriot. He loved the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was a faithful patriot to his country. And he was called to go and preach repentance to his people to turn to God and seek God's favor, mercy, and blessings and turn from their evil ways. And instead of being celebrated, he was hated, imprisoned. Uh, they attempted to have him killed. They tried to destroy his reputation. And he was accused of being a traitor uh, to his own people. Uh, of course, this is important when you're studying the books of prophecy. Uh, these three men, three of the five major prophets, were all contemporaries, uh, ministering in different areas. Of course, there were three conquests. The city of Jerusalem finally fell after a period of 19 years from the first siege to the last siege. At the first siege, Daniel was taken captive, and he wound up serving out his life, uh, ministering within Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet, and then uh, on in the future as a counselor to the media Persian rule. Then in the second conquest, you had Ezekiel taken captive. Uh, Ezekiel wound up being in a refugee community of Jews about 50 miles south of Babylon, and he was ministering to the Jews in captivity. And throughout this entire period of time, Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem, uh, beginning during a time of, of great prosperity and apparent spiritual um, uh, prosperity as well. And of course, uh, he was ministering throughout uh, the entire time of depravity, uh, fall, and ultimately the destruction uh, of uh, Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Now, some things that are important to remember as we get into chapter 35 and 36. And by the way, chapter 36 is going to be very quick. It's just a narrative. If we don't have time to get through it, then we won't. We'll stop when we're out of time. But we're going to attempt to get through 35 and 36 uh, quickly tonight. But this background is important because these two chapters predate where we were at last week by about 20 years. So we were at the point, if you remember last week, where the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian army. Zedekiah was king, and they were literally just about to fall. Well, now we go in reverse to the immediate uh, king after the reign of Josiah. And you remember Josiah was a marvelous king. He, he, began, he took the throne as a child, had a heart for the Lord. When he came of age, he decided for himself to pursue the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sought to, drive, to destroy temple or, or, or idol worship throughout all the southern kingdom. He sought to restore the temple. And it was during this period of time where they were going in to, to fix up, beautify the temple that they discovered the law. Imagine they had lost the Bible for decades at least. And Josiah had the 
law read to him, and he rent his garment, and he realized he knew they had missed God's mark, but he didn't realize just how much trouble they were in and how badly they had missed God's mark. And he genuinely repented. Again, sat in sackcloth and ashes, tore his garment, and, and literally did his best to lead Israel in a right direction. And he asked, God, will you spare Judah because of my repentance? And God said, no, it's too late. Judah is going to be judged because of their sin and wickedness and continual sin and wickedness. As we learning in Jeremiah, even though Josiah had a heart for God, the people as a whole did not. But God said, Josiah, I will not judge you as long as you're alive. So there was a stay of execution. Well, as you see on the map, there was a period of time where the Assyrian Empire was in decline, and the Babylonian Empire was on the rise. And a young general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar was leading the Babylonian army in, on, in, in, in behalf of his father, and attacked the Assyrians, defeated them, drove them back, attacked them again, defeated them, and drove them back. And the Assyrians were making their last stand, their Alamo, a city called Karshemish. It was in this time that the Egyptian ruler, Pharaoh Necho, thought that he would make a power play as Assyria was in decline. He was going to come to the aid of Assyria, and at the end of the day, he hoped that he would, in fact, be on top. Well, as you can see the red line going from Egypt up to the north, as he was making this journey, he cut through a pass in the mountains right by the ancient city of Megiddo, and it was there that Josiah who was uh, not in favor of the uh, move of the Egyptians, that he positioned his armies to try to cut them off. And it was at this point that Josiah was, in fact, killed. Well, Egypt detoured briefly. After Josiah's death, his son Jehoahaz was anointed as the king of Judah. But Egypt detoured and took control of Jerusalem took Jehoahaz as prisoner and put his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Jehoiakim was a wicked man that didn't see eye to eye with the ways of his father. And it was at this point, as you see on the map, it was at this point that tonight's lesson takes place, chapter 35 and 36. Now, Jehoiakim actually ruled basically as a tributary to Egypt for over three years. And it was at this point that Babylon, having defeated the Assyrians and the Egyptians at Karshemish and driving the Egyptians all the way back into Egypt, at some point Nebuchadnezzar detoured over to take control of Jerusalem. And it was at this point that Daniel was taken captive and taken back. Jehoiakim was left on the throne. He had sworn allegiance to Babylon, only he didn't keep his promise. And as he rebelled against Babylon, eventually Nebuchadnezzar sent his forces again to bring them back into line. We're going to see that in chapters 35 and 36. Jehoiakim was killed by Nebuchadnezzar and received uh, not a glorious burial as a king, but was thrown over the walls of the city in disgrace and eaten by animals. His son Jehoiachin was briefly placed on the throne, but he was just as wicked as his father. And quickly, Nebuchadnezzar took him as prisoner and took him back to Babylon. It was at this point that Daniel was taken. And his uncle, Zedekiah, Jehoiachin's uncle, Jehoiakim's brother, Jehoiachin's uncle, 
was placed on the throne, and he ruled for the last 11 years before the king, before Judah was finally, ultimately destroyed. Throughout this entire period, Jeremiah was preaching repentance, but you had false prophets saying that Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. We're God's people. God loves us. Everything's going to be all right. Well, of course, it wasn't all right. Jeremiah was right. The people should have listened, but didn't. And ultimately, they were judged. The city was destroyed after an 18-month siege. People were, mothers were eating their own babies because of starvation. Uh, and the city was destroyed. The temple destroyed and burned uh, to the ground. So, <clears throat> verse 1 of chapter 35. The word which came unto Jeremiah from Yahweh, yad heh vav heh in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So you see on the map right there, this is uh, four years approximately after Josiah's death. So it's early on still. He had another, uh, what, 21 plus years before the city was ultimately destroyed. God gave Jeremiah a visual message. You know, I'm a, people are visual learners. I love to use PowerPoint because people can see pictures and it helps them remember. Well, another way of learning things is by living them out or doing things as an illustration or as an example, doing a life lesson. Uh, God used Ezekiel many times that way. Hosea was called to marry a harlot as a sign to the people of God's dealing with the harlotry of, of Israel. So life lessons, these visual sermons drove home the point. And Jeremiah was called to give a visual sermon. He said, go unto the branch called the Rechabites. We're going to learn about them here in a moment. And speak unto them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers inside the house of the Lord, and give them wine to drink. Now, you see on the screen, this is a picture of what Herod's temple or the second temple would have looked like. This wasn't the temple that was around in Jeremiah's day. This was the temple that was around in I guess people don't know I work on Wednesday evenings. They just call on... Uh, anyway, uh, so this... But, but something similar to this would have been what the temple looked like that um, uh, um, uh, Solomon had built, Solomon's temple. That was the one that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. But you see around the outside, around those outer walls, you see what these were actual... Well, come on now. Uh, these were actual areas where you could hold meeting space and gatherings in the shade. Around the temple itself were areas where priests stayed, where they stored goods. You see these rooms here? All of these were like conference rooms or meeting rooms in a church complex. Well, in one of those rooms is where Jeremiah invited the Rechabites to come and meet, and there he served them the fruit of the vine. We'll learn more about that in a minute. Then I took Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, not the same Jeremiah that we're talking about. That was a common name among the Jews. The son of Habizaniah and his brethren and all his sons. In fact, I took the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the houses of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. So apparently they had an upstairs meeting room near the front gate going into the temple area itself, where they would have had a view from the court of the Gentiles, as we know it from the second temple. And I set before the sons of the Rechabites of the house of Rechab pots full of wine and cups and said unto them, Drink ye wine. 
Now, it's important that we know the background here. The Midianites, which we read about in the Old Testament, and the Kenites and the Rechabites overlapped. The Rechabites were a division of the Kenites, which are a division of the Midianites, so they were, in fact, somewhat interchangeable in their definition. Now, Moses' father-in-law is known in Scripture by three different names. One of them was his actual, most likely Hebrew name. The other could have been uh, positions of authority. Just like when you hear the term Pharaoh, that wasn't actually a name, that was a position. When you hear the term Caesar, that wasn't a name, that was a title. But Jethro, Ruel, and Hobab are all attributed to being Moses' father-in-law. And the Scripture says that he was called a priest of the area of Midianite. They also know that he was referred to as a Kenite in Judges 1.16, Judges 4.11. It's believed by some that the Kenites had all along been worshipers of Yahweh, the one true God. And if you go back historically to Babel and to the ark and the flood, you know that there was truth passed along from generation to generation. And of course, especially at Babel, there were also perversions of the truth. It is believed by some that the Kenites were in fact circumcised as the Jews were, uh, uh, consistent with the covenant of Abraham, but they didn't reckon as to being part of the children of Jacob, hence belonging to the nation of Israel. However, they worshipped the God of Israel and were very sympathetic and friendly to the Israelites, as we saw when Moses' father-in-law greeted the Jews as they escaped bondage after the Exodus and and treated them well, and they were blessed because of it. Of course, Judges 1 verse 16 tells us this about the Kenites and the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, so we know that his father-in-law was in fact a Kenite went with the Jews into the promised land. Now, Moses had invited Jethro to join them. Jethro declined, decided to stay in Midian. However, some of his heirs, the Kenites, as we see here in Scripture, obviously did join them and did go into the promised land, but they wouldn't have been inheritors of the land. They would have just been very friendly to the Jews and worshipers of the Most High God. So they would have technically been strangers dwelling in the land of Israel. Again, they weren't part of the covenant promises of the sons of Israel, but they were worshipers of Yahweh and certainly were great citizens. And let me just, it is believed by many, in fact, I lean this direction because that's one of my mentors taught me, that the modern-day Druze are actually descendants of the Midianites or the Kenites. Druze live in Israel. They're they're Israelis legally. They can serve in the Knesset. They serve in the military. They're very loyal to the nation of Israel, to the government of Israel. However, technically, they aren't Jews. They're Druze. In fact, they've got some different religious beliefs, which we won't go into detail about tonight, but I'll just throw that out there as an anecdote. It is possible that some of the descendants of the Kenites still live amongst the Jews and are still are treated very well. So the Rechabites are identified as a section of the Kenites. Jehonadab, which we just read about a moment ago, is going to be in this passage of Scripture. The background is necessary to understand what this is all talking about was a respected patriarch in the history of the Rechabites. Now, 
You see on the map that the kingdom, after Solomon, was divided geographically with ten states to the north and two states to the south. At that point, uh, the lineage of David continued to rule and reign from Judah, but the kings of Samaria were not of the, um, the, of the lineage of David. And although in the southern kingdom all kings were of the lineage of David, in the northern kingdom there were different houses that came to power, much like when you look at the history of Great Britain and the different houses that have ruled and reigned in the history of Great Britain. Now, there was a terrible king by the name of, of, of Ahab who married a woman that was a Phoenician. That's from the, the, the coast there uh, against, uh, up against the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre, Sidon. And she brought with her, her name was Jezebel, otherwise known as Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she brought with her the worship of Baal into the northern kingdom. And Baal became the primary deity during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And of course, you remember it was Elijah that had his showdown uh, there at Mount Carmel with him against the 450 prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. Well, there was a time where God said, enough of Ahab, you're finished. I'm going to replace you with a different family line. He called a guy named Jehu. Jehu started out well, but quickly got off track. But Jehu, Jehu began his rise to political leadership, political power, by aligning himself with Jehonadab and vowing to do away with Baal worship in the northern kingdom. Now, where did the term Rechabites come, come from? One possible origin is that there is a theory that Elijah and Elisha were both referred to as Rechab. Of course, we know that, that Elijah ascended to heaven riding on a fiery chariot, making the connection that term would be a symbol of strength or power. So just as Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder, Elijah and Elisha could have been called the sons of strength or the sons of power uh, with this term Rechem. Some ancient sources say that Jehonadab was a disciple of Elisha, which would make sense if that was in fact the origin of this sect called the Rechabites. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Ahab and Jezebel together made a terrible duo uh, that had introduced Baal worship to the northern kingdom. And as I said a moment ago, that Jehu had been given the mantle of the king of the north. And God took it from Ahab, was giving it to Jehu, and Jehu aligned himself with Jehonadab, which was this Kenite a man of great influence and great reputation that wasn't numbered among the 12 sons of Israel, but was a nomadic clan, a nomadic tribe that lived in the northern ten tribes, in the geography of the northern ten tribes. Jehu aligned himself with Jehonadab to help wipe out Baal worship. Of course, you all remember the story from your Sunday school classes. This, it's always one of those fun Sunday school stories and vacation Bible school stories when thousands of idol worshipers get slaughtered. Those are those wonderful stories we love to share with our kids. <laughs> then Elijah cut the heads off the 450 prophets of Baal. Yay, isn't that a good? Yeah, that's probably not the stories we, we typically tell them. Uh, but anyway, if you remember, Jehu had passed around this rumor that, hey, Ahab may have been a worshiper of Baal, but I'm going to be twice the worshiper of Baal that he is. 
So all of you Baal worshipers, come to, come on to, to Samaria. We're going to have a big party and get this thing kicked off in a right fashion. Well, they all came and they locked the doors and killed them all. Trying to get rid of, um, you know, Baal worship in the northern kingdom. So with that background, you've got the Kenites, which date all the way back to Moses' father-in-law. They weren't Jews, but they were friends of the Jews. They worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Many of them accompanied the Jews into the promised land. And they were a nomadic tribe, didn't actually own real estate. That was what they were called to do. They were like modern-day Bedouins, only Bedouins are Islamic in their, in their faith history and faith background. And the sect called the Rechabites, possibly... I lean this way, that's why I'm sharing it, but I can't prove it conclusively. Actually traced all the way back as being devoted followers of Elijah and Elisha. And of course, Jehonadab was one of those disciples of Elisha. So he was a man of influence. This is a couple of hundred years before the situation that we find ourselves in now with Jeremiah. But the lineage of this family carried on. Now, back to chapter 35. The Rechabites were brought into the temple. Oh, what an honor. Jeremiah poured wine for all of them. Said, here you go, men. Knowing that they would have to refuse because he knew their history. They were like Nazarites who had vowed a vow of separation and sanctification, which we're going to see about here. They said, we will drink no wine for Jehonadab, our hero patriarch, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Don't drink wine or any fruit of the vine, neither you nor your children after you. In fact, on top of that, don't want you to own real estate. I don't want you to have a farm. I don't want you to plant a vineyard. All of your days, I want you to be nomads. I want you to live in tents. You're going to live as strangers in this land. They said, verse 8, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab. That's the key. We're going to come back to that. They obeyed what they were commanded. The son of Rahab, our father, and all that he charged us to drink no wine all of our days, we, our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither to have vineyards, nor fields, nor seeds. But we have dwelt in tents. We've obeyed. We've done exactly as Jehonadab, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, told us to do. And it came to pass that because of Nebuchadnezzar invading uh, the the uh, uh, the northern kingdom, we got driven down here to the south. And normally we're nomads. By the way, this is my translation of verse 11. Normally we live in tents and we're nomads, but there's an invading army coming in. So whenever there's an invading army, you go inside the walls of the city for safety. So that's the only reason we're here. Normally we would be out doing exactly what Jehonadab, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, told us to do. But we're only here now because of the invasion. Notice that they were commanded... Not to drink wine, among other things. Now, the references here is because of the pledge the Rechabites had taken based upon their great-great-great-great-grandfather. Sometimes this passage is used as a proof verse to abstain from alcohol. And although I do abstain from alcohol, and the Bible clearly warns about the dangers, one, we know you're not to be drunk with wine. That's, that's a no-brainer. That's not even for debate. Don't lose control. Don't lose control of your senses. You'll make a fool out of yourself. Those of you that do drink or have drunk in your lifetime, and by the way, I was a college football player and a professional football player, so I have my share of war stories. 
But as I look back on my history, some of the dumbest decisions I've ever made in my life and some of the dumbest things I've ever done in my life have coincided with certain beverages that the Bible warns you from imbibing in. So don't be drunk with wine. That's a no-brainer. That's clear. But there are other verses that are, are more specific, I think better to use. Of course, Solomon in his book of wisdom to his sons warned against the danger of alcohol and said, don't be deceived by it. If you do, you're not using your head. And he gave this very specific warning. Don't even, don't spend time around the cup once it is fermented. When it moves like an adder, it stings like a snake. Whenever you're under its control, your eyes are going to behold strange women, and your heart shall conjure up perverted things. Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of a sea, and as he that lieth on top of a mast. Have you ever been in a small boat? What happens? You get seasick. Exactly right. They have stricken me, thou shalt say. Well, I don't remember being hit in the head, but I feel like I've been hit in the head. They have beaten me. I felt it not. And when I awake, <laughs> I want to do the same thing over again. So there are warnings against, uh, against the danger that is associated with alcohol. However, I don't believe that that is the point of chapter 35, although you can say that's consistent with that. Historically, remember, the Kenites were nomadic. Historically, Jonadab was the leader among the Rechabites. We just talked about the history back when Ahab and Jezebel was prominently ruling in the north. Now, look at verse 7. It, they were commanded by their great-great-great-great-grandfather, don't build a house. Now, is there anything wrong with building a house? No. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says we can own our own homes to provide for our own families. There's nothing wrong with owning real estate. But the Rechabites, in particular, Jehonadab's clan, because of their great-great-great-great-grandfather's charge, they weren't to own houses, nor sow seed. Is there anything wrong with farming? Nope. In fact, the Bible has explicit details on how to farm, when to let the land rest. Absolutely nothing wrong. The Jews were a very heavily agricultural society. Nothing wrong with that. However, the Rechabites, in particular, the clan descended from Jehonadab, was commanded not to farm, nor plant a vineyard. You see that although alcohol is warned as a danger and can trip you up, the fruit of the vine, the 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 uh, um, was a, was a blessing, and vineyards were a sign of prosperity and God's favor and blessing. And let me tell you, some of the best grape juice you will ever ever drink is some of the grape juice they serve in Israel. Uh, I remember one of my first trips over there. We were having a Shabbat meal at one of the hotels in Jerusalem, and they served these bottles of grape juice. And my goodness, I mean, it was uh, comparing it to Welch's. It was like they weren't even in the same family. It was so sweet and so wonderful. And uh, next thing you know, Cindy was doing tequila shots and dancing on the table. And so, you know, it starts there. And it, no, not really, not really. And if I want her to know that, I'll tell her myself. Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyway, they were charged by their great, 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 great grandfather not to settle down, to always maintain their nomadic ways. Why? Well, conjecture would be is considering what was going on in the northern kingdom at that time under Ahab and under Jezebel. 
As you know, we talk about the influence of Greece as the Grecians had over the world in Jesus' day. The Phoenicians had a substantial influence over Israel in the days of Ahab and Jezebel as the god of Phoenicia, Baal, was the god of the northern kingdom. And as you get to major metropolitan areas, there is more pressure on you to conform and comply. For example, think of life over the last 17 months. If you live out in the country or in a small rural community, you probably haven't been harassed about not wearing a mask or not getting the vaccine. However, if you live in Oklahoma City or Tulsa and you go into certain stores or certain areas of time, you probably were harassed about wearing a mask or receiving the vaccine, and you may still be. So the conjecture is that Jehonadab basically was trying to keep his family separated from the evil influences. And he said, you stay nomads. I don't want you to settle down in these cities. I don't want you to adopt their ways. I would say an example of this would be much like the Amish are today. That basically, for some reason in the mid-1800s, stopped progress. And said it's okay to have a horse and buggy, but not a motorized vehicle. I, I really don't know what they point to. However, they are basically strangers living amongst us, but perfectly good citizens and great neighbors. It is, I believe that these Kenites, the Rechabites, the sons of Jehonadab, would have been very much like that. And again, the only reason they weren't out roaming as Bedouins now was because Nebuchadnezzar was invading, as it says in verse 11. So they went inside the safety of the walls of Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Savath, the Lord of armies, the Lord of might, the God of Israel. Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you guys not listen to what I tell you to do? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, he commanded his sons not to drink wine. Well, they are still, two centuries later, following exactly what Jonadab told them to do. They're obeying their father's commandment. Now, their father is a mortal individual, don't know that you could technically back up scripturally what he was commanding them to do. In fact, I'd say you couldn't as far as not uh, owning property and not farming land and not having vineyards. There was certainly nothing wrong with that, as we just pointed out a moment ago. However, Jonadab told his kids and their kids after and their kids after, I don't want you all to do this. And they listened to him and obeyed him. Two centuries later, they're still listening to him. How is it that you Jews, after I brought you miraculously out of bondage in the land of Egypt, after I marched you through the Red Sea on dry land, after I fed you for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, after I gave you the law at Mount Sinai, how is it that you Jews can't listen or hear or obey anything I'm telling you to do? By the way, this is a consistent message that all the prophets were preaching. Think back in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah begins his whole discourse with this, calling heaven and earth to bear witness. says, the Lord has spoken. I nourished you, Israel. I brought you up as children, yet you've rebelled against me. Even a dumb ox knows when it's feeding time and knows to go home when it's time to eat and knows who his owner is. 
Even a donkey is smart enough to know who his master is and follow his master's call when it's feeding time. But my people, the Jews, aren't even as smart as an ox or a donkey. You all are wanting me to use the other KJV word, aren't you? I know Steve's back there going, oh, say it, say it, say it. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rahab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people hath not hearkened unto me. They've listened to him, a mortal man, out of respect for their great, 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 great grandfather. And here you are, I am the God of all creation that spoke everything that there is into existence and ordered it. And I saved you, your sorry rear ends. And now here you are, you won't listen to a thing I say. Verse 17, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them. If you read the law, God warned them at Mount Sinai exactly what was going to happen if they disobeyed and it was coming to pass. But they have not listened to me. I have called them and I have called them and I have called them until I could puke coat hangers. And they just aren't listening. Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father. Now remember, they were followers of Yahweh. Now Jonadab was concerned about his family being influenced by the culture that was degrading. So he charged them to be separate. However, ultimately, you remember the history we went through? They were, they were descendants of, of Moses' father-in-law, the, the priest of Midian. They were worshipers of the one true God. Because he is, they have kept all these precepts, they will stand before me. In other words, they're going to be part of my eternal kingdom. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rahab, shall not want for a man to stand before me. That's an indication of not just existence, but also in service. All right. Chapter 36. We'll be really quick. We'll get through this in just a few minutes. Again, same period of time. Jehoiakim. Any questions about chapter 35? Do you understand the point that was being made there? That whole thing was... What's that? John, I don't remember. I don't remember. Sounds like something a guy named Menahem would have done, but I don't remember. But probably in that period of time. I remember the story you're talking about, but I don't remember which king or when exactly that was. It may have been. All right, so same period of time. Again, Jehoiakim been really about three or four years, and you're going to see just how much people like God's Word and want to get away from it. Not just now. It's always been that way. Now, we're going to read the chapter very quickly. Again, this is a narrative. And it came to pass the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a scroll and write everything I have told you on that scroll. Everything that I have warned about Israel and Judah and against all the nations from the day that I first began speaking unto you. Remember, all the way back in the 13th year of Josiah, I want you to write it all down from then up until now. Now they're four years in Jehoiakim, so about 20 years of ministry. I want you to write down every sermon I've, I've, I've preached through you. And it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil that I plan for them if they continue in disobedience. And perhaps they will repent of their evil ways. In that case, I'll be able to forgive their sin, and I won't have to judge them. Remember what happened when Josiah discovered the law. Remember, he rent his garment and grieved in sackcloth and ashes. 
God is saying, by chance, it's now 20 years later, perhaps Jehoiakim will respond the same way. God gives us opportunities. It may be, that, okay, in verse 4, then Jeremiah called Baruch, his amanuensis, his scribe, his secretary, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah talked. He took dictation. He was a ready writer, as they say. All the words of the Lord, which had spoken unto him and written it in a scroll. They didn't have codex at the time. This was written in a scroll. Now, Remember, Baruch was the one that recorded the title deed when uh, uh, Jeremiah was told to purchase his cousin's property in, in uh, Anathoth. Um, by the way, I think this is really cool. In the city of David, which is the original city uh, just south of the Temple Mount, they discovered this seal. It's Baruch's seal. The official um, uh, political dignitary that worked with Jeremiah this was his seal they discovered amongst the ruins there just south of the Dimble Mount. Discovered back in 1975, but isn't that amazing? Here we are, what, 1975, 2000, what, what is it, 2,600 years later? 46. Oh, 46 years ago, but 2,600 years from when Jeremiah was actually ministering, they discover this seal amongst the ruins. Isn't that amazing? So here we are, another chamber at Herod's temple. Uh, now, Jeremiah was on the king's bad side. Uh, perhaps he was already under arrest or had a warrant out for his arrest. Verse 5, then Jeremiah told Baruch, saying, listen, I can't go, but I want you to go to the temple. Therefore, go, and I want you to read this scroll that you have written, all the words that I've told you. And in the future, there's going to be a point. Now, here's God speaking to Jeremiah. Uh, as Nebuchadnezzar comes down... These phonies are going to go through the process of having a day of prayer and fasting. How many times have you seen churches in America and the political leaders in America over the last 10 years call for a day of prayer and fasting and then do nothing to actually bring it about? We're just going to go through the motions and pray and maybe God will have mercy on us and rescue us. Same situation here. We see what a dirtbag Jehoiakim is. Nevertheless, he's going to go through the process and call for a day of fasting and prayer once Nebuchadnezzar and his troops are on the horizon. Verse 7, it may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, just like King Hezekiah did, just like Josiah did, and will return every run from his evil way. For God's anger is great, and God's fury has been pronounced against the people. Perhaps they'll listen, perhaps they'll repent. Verse 8, Baruch, the son of Uriah, did exactly what Jeremiah had told him to do. And he went to the temple and read the book that Jeremiah had written. By the way, we've got a copy of it. We're studying it right now. And it came to pass that about nine months later, lo and behold, Nebuchadnezzar did make his incursion into the southern, into the northern, into the southern kingdom. Excuse me. And Jehoiakim did call for a day of prayer and fasting. It was at that point that Baruch had an, a, a great opportunity to read the word of God through Jeremiah to all the people, and he did. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard the, the words of the book of Jeremiah and God's warnings, he went to the king's house, went into the scribe's chamber, where all the princes, in other words, the king's chief of staff and all of his staff was there, his entire cabinet was there, even Elishema, the scribe, and Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, 
and Elnathan, the son of Akbar. And didn't, didn't Skandar Akbar wrestle in the WWE for a while? Anyway, never mind. And, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, not the same Zedekiah, different one, the son of Hananiah, again, that was a common name, and all the princes. Now, some of these guys were bad dudes. We know that Zedekiah was the son of Hananiah, who was a false prophet. We know that Elnathan was the scoundrel that went to Egypt and captured Uriah the prophet and killed him. So they, these were not good men, but they were the king's cabinet. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, unto Baruch, the scribe, Jeremiah's buddy, saying, I want you to take the scroll and I want you to store it uh, over here. And, and then I want another, I want, I want it to be recited to the king, but we've got the scroll. Well, anyway, you keep the scroll over here. I'm going to take the message to the king. We'll see if the king will hear the message. And it came to pass that when they heard all the words, they were afraid, both of one and the other, and said unto Baruch, we will tell the king exactly what you have to say. came to pass that when Jehudi, I think I skipped a section. John got an answer to prayer, first one. I think I skipped a couple of verses there. Anyway, they took the Scripture in, and they read it. The, the staff was petrified. The people had heard it. They were worried. The staff of Jehoiakim was petrified over the warnings that were given through Jeremiah. So they went and retrieved the letter, the scroll, took it into King Jehoiakim and the top two or three of his advisors. And they were reading this letter, this scroll, to King Jehoiakim. And when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, basically, equivalent of three or four pages of Scripture. <laughs> he took his pocket knife out, or actually a pen knife, which was used by scribes. They didn't have an eraser, so they actually used a knife to cut and, and, and to fragments certain errors and scrolls. But he took his pocket knife out and cut up Jeremiah's book and burned it in the fire. And they weren't afraid. And they didn't rend their garments as Josiah did. And Jehoiakim didn't either, and none of his servants. Nevertheless, a couple of his counselors begged him not to burn the book of Jeremiah. But he refused to listen to them. And the king commanded that the scroll be burnt, and then he put out an arrest warrant to have Jeremiah and Baruch arrested. However... Baruch and Jeremiah had been warned ahead of time that they needed to go and hide themselves before they took the scroll into the king. Now, here's one point I want to make, and we've got two more verses, three more verses, and we're going to be done. Pastors today want to avoid controversy. Look at what we're dealing with tonight, 600 years before the birth of Christ. Was this controversial? When has truth ever not been controversial? When has the man of God ever not been in the center of controversy? You go all the way back prior to the flood, when Enoch was raptured into heaven. The New Testament tells us that Enoch was a preacher of righteousness that preached to the world about their ungodliness and warned them of judgment which was to come. How well received do you think that popular sermon was? Not so much. How popular was Noah? 
in his 120 years of preaching? Was he celebrated or was he hated and mocked? What about Moses? In fact, not only was he not received by Pharaoh, but what about the Jews? When immediately he got them into bigger trouble when Pharaoh said, listen, I'm not going to give you a straw to make your blocks because this lockhead Moses, he had the audacity to come and approach me with this demand, but you better produce the same amount of brick every day. How popular was he among his own people? They wanted to kill him. What about Elijah? Was Elijah was controversial? I would say standing on Mount Carmel and calling down fire from heaven and then killing 450 prophets of Baal was probably a controversial act. What about Elisha? When some of the kids in town called him Old Baldy and he called a couple of she-bears out of the woods to eat them. That's my kind of ministry. That, that is the epitome of youth ministry right there. Spending all this money on playgrounds and jungle gyms, easiest solution for the kid problem? Eat them. <laughs> what about Isaiah? Was Isaiah controversial? You better believe it. What about Jeremiah? Was Jeremiah controversial? What about John the Baptist? What about this guy, this carpenter's son from Nazareth that came into the temple and kicked over all the merchants' tables and chased all the... The, the leadership, the spiritual leadership out of the temple complex. Do you think that might have been subject for discussion at the water cooler the next day? When has truth ever not been controversial when we're trying to shine the light of truth into the world of darkness? Why is it that we think the church is not going to be controversial or better yet isn't supposed to be controversial? Why didn't we have a hundred pastors from Edmond going down to the city council to object to this proclamation to celebrate LGBT month? How in the world can you have any congregation, especially a large one that's supposedly from a conservative denomination, say we don't address the subject of, of the murder of children in the fires of Moloch, other words, abortion, because we have members of our congregation on both sides of that issue. How can that be humanly possible? It shouldn't be. You're not following Christ in that area of life, if that is your position. Folks, everywhere Paul went in the book of Acts, he either got thrown in jail, run out of town on a rail, or a riot broke out. Jesus was so popular, they crucified him. Why is it that we think that the church today isn't going to be controversial if we actually stand up and proclaim truth into an ungodly culture? Of course we're going to be controversial. And just as today you've got certain denominations trying to disconnect from parts of the Bible, you got Matt Stanley, whatever, saying we've got to disconnect from the Old Testament. Folks, where in the world did Jesus disavow the first 39 books of the Bible? When did Jesus say, oh boy, my God, well, I certainly messed up the first 4,000 years of human history. What a, what a boneheaded move that was on my part. I'm going to change direction completely. No. At Thessalonica, Paul had only been there three weeks, and the church had such an impact on that pagan culture that they were transforming the culture around them. 
They were running for school board, Margaret. In fact, better yet, they were pulling their kids out of public education, and they were opening up homeschool co-ops in their churches. And the unbelievers rioted against them and accused these Christians of trying to turn the world upside down, trying to change the world. Shouldn't we be trying to change the world when you look at it? Think of it. In Ephesus was the great temple to the, the goddess Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The church in Ephesus had such a dramatic impact on the culture that the silversmiths led in a riot because the community was so affected by Christianity that tourists were starting not to travel to see Diana and they weren't buying the little silver idols, shrines, to take home with them. That's called an awakening. Was that controversial? Yeah, you better believe it was to the silversmiths. They rioted over it. So, take comfort, all of us. Recognize that we're just living our chapter in the book of Acts. We are the few, and I mean that literally, when you look around again, you look at our, 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 our proclamation down there, going down to see the mayor of Edmond. We have 10 pastors in the entire community of Edmond that had the courage to put their signature on it. And two of those pastors are from the same church. So you had nine total churches that over a week of trying were willing to sign their name to a letter calling the mayor of Edmond to account because he's celebrating a lifestyle a, a behavior that God calls sinful. And we, we're surprised that only nine churches, nothing's changed. God has always used a remnant of faithful prophets. And they were always opposed by a vast majority of, of unfaithful, false prophets. And there's always a battle over truth. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, do this. Next thing you know, Satan shows up and says, Eve, did God really say that? And the battle for truth claims have been on ever since. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves in a contentious situation. We shouldn't be, find, be surprised when we find ourselves in an area of controversy. You think this is controversial right here when the king of Israel, Judah, and again, the Jews are supposedly the followers of Yahweh. They had the temple right there in the city of Jerusalem. The king of Judah cuts to pieces the book of Jeremiah and throws it in the fire. But guess what? God told Jeremiah and Baruch to go and hide. And then they went back and rewrote it and added about 15 chapters to it. So for my dear friend John, when he wants John, Dan and I to end early... That just means that next time we're going to come back with even more. All right, next week we got through two chapters tonight miraculously in 45 minutes. And we paid proper respect, I think, to both of them.